0: Hey, everyone, it's Kate. It's been a while, but my gosh, so much has happened since we last spoke. Last week, the Supreme Court heard opening arguments on the Mississippi abortion case that essentially bans all abortions after 15 weeks. The six conservative justices all indicated they were likely to uphold the ban, which would all but annihilate Roe v. Wade. It's also clear that many or possibly most of the justices are interested in overturning Roe versus Wade altogether. Justice Sonia Sotomayor said that if we lose Roe, all other cases similarly following under the right to privacy are also on the chopping block because, quote, none of those things are written in the Constitution. The death of Roe could signal a loss of all these hard-won rights found in the structure, not the text, of the Constitution. Access to contraceptives in Griswold legal LGBTQ relationships in Lawrence, and same-sex marriage in Obergefell, in addition to abortion rights. All of that we stand to lose. In short, it's time to sound the alarm. To help us understand what exactly is at stake, we're bringing back our episode from season two that examines the landmark case Roe v. Wade, how it came to be, what exactly it established, and where it's vulnerable to legal attacks. You better believe we're watching the Mississippi abortion ban case Dobbs like a hawk, and we'll be back soon to keep you in the loop. In the meantime, stay tuned for everything you need to know about the status of Roe and how we can fight back by certifying and publishing the ERA, cementing it into the Constitution once and for all.
1: This was one of the Women's Liberation Movement pioneers, Cindy Sisler, her group, New Yorkers for Abortion Law Repeal, put out their ideal law and it was a blank sheet. There should be no law regarding abortion. Why is there a special law on abortion? It should be like any other, you know, an appendectomy. Why why do you have special law there?
2: While the
0: abortion laws in this country may be far from a blank sheet of paper it is important that we remind ourselves of the landmark case that changed abortion access in this country.
3: Today, we're talking about that landmark 1973 case,
0: Roe versus Wade. I'm Jamia Wilson, writer, editor, and feminist activist. I'm Kate Kelly, human rights attorney and feminist activist. And this is Ordinary Equality.
2: This is something central to a woman's life, to her dignity, It's a decision that she must make for herself.
4: From Kansas, Kentucky and North Carolina, dedicated women marched. Abortion is fast becoming the new political fault line. Alabama's governor has signed the nation's strictest abortion ban into law. The Human Life Protection Act outlaws the procedure except when the mother's life is at risk.
2: This bill is not
4: about pro-life or the right to life. This bill is about control. We We will not go back. And we, the people of the United States of America, documented or undocumented, are having abortions, legal or not. This court will never stop us. In
0: 1970, President Nixon signed Title X, which included a provision under which doctors on military bases could perform abortions. He declared publicly that year, no American woman should be denied access to family planning assistance because of her economic condition. But his speechwriter, Pat Buchanan, convinced him that opposing abortion was a winning stance. And in 1971, Nixon did a total about-face.
3: As we'd later discover in the Nixon tapes, the president's personal views on abortion were nuanced, but also highly problematic. They were based in overt misogyny and racism. And he is on record saying privately, quote, there are times when abortions are necessary, stating that one of the instances when they are, quote, necessary... Are when the pregnancy resulted from sex between, quote, a black
0: and a white. In addition to overt racism, Nixon was also responding defensively to the growing power of the women's liberation movement.
3: Part of that movement included what we discussed last week the underground network of both religious and secular organizations helping women safely access abortions, in direct defiance of the law. Depending on where they were, they were either referred to abortion providers in places like Mexico and New York City, or the abortions were administered clandestinely where they lived. But wait,
0: why would New York be a place to go if abortion was illegal in the United States? Well, in 1970, under overwhelming pressure, New York and Hawaii became the first states to decriminalize abortion. Affluent women who could afford travel immediately started flocking to New York to seek the service. And by 1971, just a year after the decriminalization, the maternal mortality rate of women in New York dropped by 45%. It was seen as a huge public health triumph at the time. There's one
3: other legal ruling we need to look at before we fully dive into the story of Roe v. Wade, the 1965 decision of Griswold v. Connecticut. In this case, the executive director of the Planned Parenthood League of Connecticut, Estelle Griswold, and one of her doctors were arrested for prescribing birth control to a married woman. This
0: directly violated state law, which forbid the use of contraception in all instances. Griswold appealed her conviction twice before the case made its way to the Supreme Court. There, she found a more favorable audience. In many of the briefs submitted in support of Griswold, including from the ACLU and Planned Parenthood, arguments were based on equality. But the court ignored that line of reasoning. Instead, the court decided the use of contraception within the confines of marriage fell under a new right they called privacy. Here's Amani Gandhi. She's an attorney and senior editor of law and policy at Rewire News Group. She's also the co-host of the podcast Boom! Lawyered. I asked her to explain how this right of privacy argument was justified in the law. So a lot of people will say
1: that the right of privacy doesn't exist in the Constitution textually, right? Because you have the Bill of Rights. It says all of these things are, are fundamental rights. It doesn't say that the right of privacy is a fundamental right. Then there's this case Griswold v. Connecticut, right? In in Griswold, that's the case where the court decided that married couples could use birth control without being thrown in jail for it. Or rather, doctors could prescribe birth control pills to married couples without being thrown in jail for it. And in that case, there's this discussion of privacy emanating from these penumbras in the Constitution. This right to privacy argument was a new invention.
3: Justice Douglas wrote for the majority opinion and stated, quote, Specific guarantees in the Bill of Rights have penumbras, formed by emanations from those guarantees that help give them life and substance. The word penumbra is a scientific word for the outer part of a shadow. Douglas pulled it out of nowhere to apply to legal concepts he wanted to find in the Constitution. Since the ERA had not yet been passed or ratified by 1965, He felt the court couldn't find the right of women to access contraception in the words of the Constitution, only in its shadows. This legal argument ends up being the foundation of Roe.
1: Essentially, these penumbras have to do with substantive due process. We're talking about issues related to family, marriage, pregnancy, birth control. So we're talking gay marriage is a substantive due process, right? Uh, interracial marriage is a substantive due process. The right to have kids, the right not to have kids, the right to use birth control. All of those things. None of these things are mentioned specifically in the Constitution. And so that's why you'll hear a lot of conservatives say things like, well, there's no privacy right in the Constitution. So, And you don't see the word abortion written in the Constitution. So therefore, there's no fundamental right to abortion in the Constitution, which is hollow. Because there are substantive due process rights that, you know, the, the Constitution isn't just what the Constitution says. The Constitution is also
0: what the Supreme Court over the last couple hundred years have said it says. It's worth reiterating that Supreme Court decisions are a product of who is sitting on the bench. As Heidi Schreck explores in her play, What the Constitution Means to Me, there may have been some elements of Griswold that were of personal interest to the justices. At the time of the ruling, Justice Douglas was 67 and having an affair with a 22-year-old woman. So perhaps Justice Douglas was personally motivated to carve out a new right to privacy and get women access to contraception ASAP.
3: Regardless of motive, the Griswold decision, the decriminalization of abortion in a few states, and the refusal of millions of American women to obey the law in others paved the way for Roe.
4: I think it's without question that pregnancy to a woman can completely disrupt her life, whether she's unmarried, whether she's pursuing an education, whether she's pursuing a career, whether she has family problems.
0: That's Sarah Weddington, the lead attorney representing Roe. Sarah was only 26 when she argued this case in front of the court, which honestly is just wild to comprehend. She was not all that far removed from her own abortion story. That's right. Sarah later
3: revealed in her book published by the Feminist Press, a question of choice, that she'd had a clandestine abortion in Mexico just six years prior. She kept her personal connection with the case hidden, saying, quote, I secretly resolved to find a way to fix things in the future. It seemed a big waste of energy to throw a hissy fit over my own experiences.
0: According to Sarah's book, The idea to challenge the abortion laws in Texas came out of a garage sale fundraiser for a local abortion referral group. Standing in the driveway, Sarah was peppered with legal questions from the women who had gathered to raise money for more equitable abortion access. It was through these conversations that her resolve grew to take on the Texas abortion laws. What she needed was a plaintiff. Here's Imani Gandhi. Essentially, Texas had a statute that criminalized
1: performing abortions. It criminalized doctors. It did not criminalize pregnant women, pregnant people. And Norma McCorvey, Jane Roe, needed an
0: abortion, was not able to get one and filed a lawsuit. The fact that Norma McCorvey, who we will come to know as Jane Roe, was pregnant was really important. There was also a couple involved in the case as co-plaintiffs. They took the pseudonym Doe. And Norma got Roe, since Doe was already taken. But neither member of the couple was pregnant at the time. In order to sue, a plaintiff has to have an argument that they will suffer an actual injury. For the people who are not pregnant and perhaps weren't going to get pregnant, it would have been harder to prove that point. Norma McCorvey, on the other hand, had an injury. She was pregnant. She wanted an
1: abortion. She was not able to get one because doctors who gave her, if any doctor would have performed an abortion on her... That would have been criminalized. So Sarah Weddington
3: had her case. Norma McCorvey is a complex character unto herself. Norma was a queer poor woman who received little education and grew up in really tough circumstances. When Norma sought legal counsel, it's unclear whether she understood it was unlikely the case would favorably resolve in time for her to actually have an abortion. While she went on to win rights for people across the country, Norma's personal journey wasn't as victorious. We'll dive more into how her life evolved after the case
0: in a bit. But first, let's take stock of the Wade portion of Roe v. Wade, the defendant, Henry Wade.
2: Well, since I've
4: been this attorney, I've tried 24 death penalty cases, uh, which we asked the death penalty. And how many death verdicts did you get? 23.
0: Henry Wade was a Texas politician and district attorney in Dallas County. Over the 35 years he spent as a DA, he sentenced 29 people to death row. Not very pro-life in that regard. The
3: lawsuit that Sarah Weddington filed challenged the existing Texas law that criminalized abortion providers.
0: Despite her inexperience, Sarah won her first federal court case. But D.A. Wade was pretty arrogant about the ruling. Because the court had just ruled in Sarah's favor, but didn't dictate specific changes, he decided he didn't have to uphold the ruling.
1: Well, one would think that if a court says this law is unconstitutional, that the district attorney would say, "Okay, I should probably stop prosecuting doctors under it. That did not happen. Henry Wade was like, well, we're going to keep on going forward prosecuting doctors because you didn't say I couldn't. So that's just sort of one of the ways in which the um, district attorneys and the people prosecuting these laws were playing fast and loose with the law, because pretty obviously, if a law is unconstitutional, you should probably stop (laughs) prosecuting people under it. But he didn't see it that way.
3: Wade's arrogance and defiance of the court order sent this case on a fast track to the Supreme Court, but not without bumps along the way.
0: A New York attorney named Roy Lucas stepped in to help prepare Roe versus Wade. Lacking litigation experience, the Roe attorneys gratefully accepted his assistance. But then he sent a letter to the court behind the backs of Sarah Weddington and her female colleagues and stated that he would argue the case in front of SCOTUS. They were shocked at his betrayal
3: when they found out. Luckily, clients have the final say in who argues their case. The Doe couple and Jane Roe wrote to the Supreme Court and corrected the record. They said, not so fast. Sarah Weddington was to present the oral argument,
0: not Roy Lucas, who they'd never met. And so, Sarah became the youngest person ever to argue in front of the Supreme Court.
4: One of the purposes of the Constitution was to guarantee to the individual the right to determine the course of their own lives, insofar as there was perhaps no compelling state interest, and we allege there is none in this case.
3: One more peculiar thing about the arguments. They happened twice. When the case was first heard on December 13, 1971, the Supreme Court was two justices short. There were still enough justices present to hear the case and vote on it, which they did. But instead of issuing a ruling, they decided it should be heard again by a full bench. It was scheduled for reargument on October 11, 1972, after Justices Lewis Powell and William
0: Rehnquist had joined the court. This is highly unusual. There's a rumor that President Nixon may have had something to do with it. He was in the midst of running for re-election and didn't want the court, which was often called the Nixon court at the time, to weigh in. The final decision wouldn't come down until January 22, 1973, after Nixon defeated George McGovern in a landslide in November 1972. So let's get back to the Supreme Court arguments.
3: Such a young woman arguing a case before the Supreme Court was highly unusual. There weren't even bathrooms for women at the Supreme Court at the time. Sarah said she had to cross the street and use the bathroom at another building during breaks. I often think about what it meant for a woman of reproductive age, who had already had a clandestine abortion, to be arguing a case that would impact her own bodily integrity and that of her peers. Think about that juxtaposed with the lawyer representing Wade— a man named Jay Floyd, who tried to use the court's discomfort with women to his advantage. He opened his oral argument with a joke.
4: It's an old joke, but when a argue, man argues against two beautiful ladies like this, they're going to have the last word.
3: The joke bombed. No one laughed. And the sheer awkwardness rattled Floyd.
0: Good evening. In a landmark ruling, the Supreme Court today legalized abortions. The majority in cases from Texas and Georgia said that the decision to end a pregnancy during the first three months belongs to the woman and her doctor, not the government. In a 7-2 to two decision, the court ruled in Roe's favor. The right to privacy framework from the Griswold decision held up when applied to abortion. Abortion access was officially a constitutionally protected right and legal everywhere in America.
3: Besides the 7-2 ruling, which is hard to comprehend nowadays, the other shocking fact about this was that it
0: wasn't that big of a deal. The newspapers the next day led with headlines not of Roe, but about former President Lyndon Johnson's death. At the time, Roe wasn't really a scandalous decision. It was considered somewhat of a conservative win. A person's personal liberty was protected from the state. Simple, not radical.
3: Of course, it's important to celebrate and acknowledge how monumental Roe was for abortion access. It was a lifesaver for millions of people who had been forced to travel internationally and get dangerous back alley abortions. But it wasn't a cure-all. It's far from that blank sheet of paper activists called for. It set up a medicalized framework for abortion access. Here's Talcott Camp, the chief legal and strategy officer at the National Abortion Federation, on what exactly the Roe decision meant. First off, abortion was legal in a few states before Roe, right?
5: What Roe said was states may not ban abortion before the point of viability, right? It didn't say they have to ban abortion after viability. It just said as a matter of federal constitutional law, states may not ban abortion before the point of fetal viability, which is at sort of 24- 26 weeks, something like that, right? So once the Supreme Court made that decision, abortion bans fell all over the country, including in Texas, which is where the case originated. The Supreme Court did articulate the right using a lot of language about the prerogative of the medical provider, whom the opinion assumes to be male, right? So you have this odd gender dynamic where the person exercising the right always appears as a uh, female in the opinion, and the person providing the care always appears as male. And it is that male character who gets the uh, a lot of the deference.
0: The gender dynamics of the decision are made even wilder by the fact that the court's decision didn't include any input from women. At the time, nine male justices sat on the court. When I asked one of the clerks who worked for Justice Blackman, the author of the opinion, if any women had been consulted in the drafting of the opinion, he said, no, it hadn't really come up. The framework of the decision left open two important points of tension.
3: One, what it means for a fetus to be viable. Two, how the state could legally weigh in at distinct points in the pregnancy. Here's Amani Gandhi.
1: So in Roe, they set up this trimester framework, right? So in the first trimester, You know they say abortion is safer than than birth and so we're just going to let pregnant people decide whether to get an abortion or not just free of any interference in the first trimester then in the second trimester we're going to say states have some interest in protecting the mother protecting mother's health can implement regulations if they are there to protect the
0: health of the pregnant person then in the third trimester all bets are off the pregnant person has basically no say And the states can really regulate abortion however they want, as long as there's a health exception. There's always got to be a health exception.
3: As the Roe v. Wade lawyers prepared their briefs for the Supreme Court, they debated whether some facts were too obvious to even include. But one footnote, number 96, became one of the most important parts of the case. It reads, The 14th Amendment refers to, quote, all persons born or naturalized in the United States.
0: This footnote continues to be relevant today as we argue the meaning of viability. The lawyers for Roe argued, for example, that property rights were contingent on being born alive. That definition continues to come into question. The
3: case is also open to challenge based on the idea of privacy as part of our substantive due process. Conservative legal scholars continue to argue that abortion is not a, quote, constitutional right, because nowhere in the Constitution does it say the word abortion. Amani has thoughts on that.
1: The Constitution says nothing about abortion because no one cared about abortion. Just like the Constitution doesn't say anything about gay marriage because no one cared about same-sex marriage at the time. But it is a substantive due process, right? The, The Supreme Court has found that substantive due process rights are fundamental rights in the Constitution. The right to privacy is a fundamental right in the Constitution. And just as a sidebar, there's this thing called the Ninth Amendment, and the Ninth Amendment essentially is like this catch-all amendment that says, yeah, we wrote down a bunch of shit that are enumerated rights, free speech, freedom of press, blah, 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 blah. We did not write down all of the fundamental rights that could possibly exist because we don't know what those rights are. And so whatever those rights are, those rights are retained by the people. So if a court in the future, as the court this court did, says – Abortion is a fundamental right. That right is a right retained by the people. That right is protected by the Ninth Amendment. So we don't even really need to get into the 14th Amendment or the Fifth Amendment and due process and substantive due process. We don't even need to talk about all that because the right to abortion is an unenumerated right protected by the Ninth Amendment. And that's really the end of the goddamn discussion as far as I'm concerned. But nevertheless, we must have these conversations about penumbras and right to privacy and when those rights attach and do those rights attach at birth and yada, 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 blah, blah.
3: It's also important to note that the Roe decision was not entirely inclusive. Here's Talcott camp on that. Because Roe
5: established the right to determine whether or not to continue a pregnancy as a fundamental right under the US Constitution with an extremely high level of judicial review, right? Strict scrutiny. Under Roe, if the state uh, wanted to restrict um, someone's ability to decide whether or not to continue a pregnancy, the state had to meet that highest level of review, strict scrutiny. That's tremendous. Now, it is true that there were real shortcomings to Roe, as is true with pretty much any judicial decision. So, for example, even under Roe, even under that strict scrutiny, two groups lost out and lost out quite quickly after the Roe decision. One was minors. Second, low-income folks lost out Uh, very quickly after Roe. The Supreme Court held that states and the federal government may exclude abortion from the otherwise comprehensive health care coverage provided in Medicaid.
0: Perhaps the most emblematically excluded in the Roe decision was Roe herself, As we know, pregnancies are time-sensitive endeavors. The law, on the other hand, is not particularly fast-moving. Years passed between the first lawsuit and the final Supreme Court decision.
3: I always need to take a deep breath when I think of the weight of this. But Norma McCorvey did not receive the abortion she sought. When the 1973 decision was handed down, Sarah Weddington called Norma to share the good news, exclaiming, We won! Norma replied, No, you won. Why would I be excited? I had a baby.
0: The fact that the suit was a class-action lawsuit on behalf of all pregnant women made it so the circumstances of the case did not hinge on Norma's pregnancy alone. While that was a savvy legal move, it left Norma's immediate need for relief behind, in service of the greater good. The movement around Roe v. Wade was not particularly kind to Norma overall.
3: Here's Gloria Allred, the famed women's rights attorney. She represented Norma for a time after the Roe decision.
2: I met Norma McCorvey, also known as Jane Roe of Roe v. Wade, many, many decades ago at a big rally, a pro-choice rally in Washington, D.C. And I think she came up to me and she said, I'm Jane Roe. And I said, oh, are you one of the speakers today at the pro-choice rally? which I thought she would be and should be one of the speakers. She said, no, they won't allow me to speak. And they didn't invite me to speak. I said, really, I'm so surprised about that. And in any event, after that, she stayed in touch with me and she wanted to speak. So I helped her start speaking out because I think it's important for people to hear more about pro-choice. And she wanted to speak about it, felt she had a right to speak about it. That went on for some years.
0: So the woman whose case won us all the right to access legal abortion didn't get any relief herself. And she was excluded from the pro-choice movement in a sort of mean girl's way. Given that context, one of the biggest scandals to rock the post-Roe world was when Norma became an ally of the anti-choice movement.
2: She's likely to have traded her status as a symbol of one side of the abortion debate to that of an icon of the other. And both sides want her as Jane Roe. Norma McCorvey is a different story.
3: This was paraded around as a big win for the anti-choice movement. I mean, turning the Roe of Roe v. Wade into an anti-choice advocate was quite the scoop. And there's nothing they love more than a redemption narrative. But the story wasn't that simple. Here's Gloria again.
2: And then one day, I suddenly received the news, and also Norma let me know uh, that she'd gone over to the, the anti choice side. Now, my feeling always was that she was pro choice. And because I was her attorney, I'll never say what she said to me or what I said to her, because that's confidential. But I always had the feeling that she was pro choice and um, had done it because you know, the anti-choice side would perhaps pay her for speaking or help her with some form of economic support. She needed that. She didn't have sufficient funds to live. And the pro-choice side was not doing that. They weren't having her speak and they weren't helping to support her in any way. We always had a very cordial relationship because my job is to support women who choose to have abortion and then support those who are against abortion because it's about choice and they have the right to choose and she chose to go over to the anti-choice side of course i would like her to have stayed on the pro-choice side but i completely understood her circumstances so it was not for me to say what she should do
0: norma had sacrificed her body and years of her life for a movement that hadn't wanted her to represent much more than a pseudonym on a piece of paper she was extremely poor and without many resources. The anti abortion side used her too. One of the conditions of the bribe they gave her took away one of the most meaningful parts of Norma's life, her longtime partner, Connie Gonzalez. Here's Imani.
1: The people who became so entangled in her life, in her post roe life, were basically using her. She was very vulnerable. She had no money. She was poor. She wasn't particularly educated. And they came to her and said, hey, we'll give you all this money if you just sort of switch sides. And she said, okay, I'll do that. And and sort of this tragedy that attends that decision was the fact that she was in a, a lesbian relationship. She was in a relationship with another woman, a very serious relationship for years and years and years. And before these these anti-choice campaigners, these terrorists essentially would even give her the money that they promised to give her if she switched sides. They forced her to give up this relationship that was really important to her.
3: In the winter of 2017, Norma passed away. From her deathbed, she spoke to her experience with the reproductive rights movement.
1: Did they use you as a trophy?
4: Of course. I was the big fish.
1: Do you think they would say that you used them
4: well, I think it was a mutual thing. You know, I took their money and they put me out in front of the cameras and told me what to say. And that's what I'd say. Women have been having abortions for thousands of years. If it's just the woman's choice then, and she chooses to have an abortion, then it should be safe. Roe vs. Wade helps save women's lives.
2: Here's Gloria Allred again. And then, of course, in a way, she made a deathbed confession on a documentary. Uh, she knew it was getting to be the end of her life, and she confessed that she was really pro-choice all along, which I'm sure was very disturbing to the anti-choice side because they appeared, many of them, to enjoy having her as, in a way, a poster child for the anti-choice movement. Kind of a nana nana Jane Rowe is anti-choice. But I guess she managed to wipe the smiles off their faces when she said she was really pro-choice all along.
0: And I, as a lawyer, I think about Norma McCorvey in the context as a litigant. uh, It's very difficult for people who are not lawyers and not involved with the legal process to understand that a lot of times litigation, especially this high-impact Supreme Court litigation, is actually not about the plaintiffs. You have to have a story. You have to have an actual person with an actual injury. But at the end of the day, because it takes so long and the process is so involved, the individuals who are involved in the litigation may not actually get any relief. They may not benefit. And so... It, you know, again, Norma is a person with no uh, resources, very little education. She seeks out a lawyer to help her get an abortion. And many years later, there is a decision that helps everyone but her get that thing that she was seeking. And that's really hard to understand. And it's really hard to explain as a lawyer. It's hard to make clear this case is actually about a bigger issue and a bigger cause than you or your immediate situation. And so I'm not sure that she had that conversation. And I'm not sure that she understood that in the end, even if they win the case, uh, she wasn't going to win. So I can see how she would have felt very disappointed and let down by being part of something so big that did not benefit her personally. Um, And I think I don't know. I think women just get really taken advantage of and used as pawns. And and it's sad to see that she felt like both sides were kind of using her.
3: Yeah. And I think that's what was so interesting to me in watching it, that she's kind of like, you both used me and I'm going to go out on my terms with my story as I see it. And Norma McCorvey was a survivor and you know i think that's something that i respect about her although i didn't respect all of her tactics right i i see that she was you know facing some pretty tough circumstances she was marginalized in a number of ways and she kept reminding people that hey what's a win for you doesn't necessarily necessitate a win for me and it sounds like her voice wasn't always heard and so i think it's a good cautionary tale for all of us, too, who find ourselves wanting to support survivors of broken systems in general to really listen and to really listen to what people need and also to try to
0: fight for policies that promote access. And I think it's important to remember, especially when it comes to human rights, it actually doesn't matter what one individual person believes. (laughs) Like, It should have no import one way or the other that the plaintiff in Roe versus Wade changed her mind. It doesn't matter what one person thinks. That person is still permitted to not terminate a pregnancy. That's fine. Saying like neener, 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 someone changed their mind. I understand the rhetorical flourish and I understand the emotional impact of that argument. But when you really think about it, it shouldn't matter at all. It's totally true. (laughs)
3: It's totally true. And that there has to be this sort of legal strategy. I think it's interesting because a lot of times, I mean, I've seen it in my own personal life and family experiences where people think that, you know, taking a case to trial or having a legal engagement all of a sudden is going to fix things, you know. And a lot of people don't truly understand that the law is the law, but it doesn't mean that the law will ensure access. Or justice. It's about how you wield the law, it's how you engage the law, and how you hold the law accountable.
0: As we're all too aware, Roe did not solve all our problems. It did not preserve the right to access abortion for all people in all instances. A huge part of that failing ties back to my favorite topic, the ERA. The Roe case was based
3: on substantive due process rights, or rights to privacy. But in doing so, the court completely
0: ignored equality, which should be at the heart of the issue. In 1985, the late, great Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, then an appellate-level judge, openly expressed her disappointment in the Roe v. Wade decision to ignore how abortion access discriminates against all women, or, as she wrote, a woman's, quote, "...ability to stand in relation to men, society, and the state as independent, self-sustaining, equal citizens." Instead of asking the justices to acknowledge that under the Constitution, women should have unassailable control over their bodies because we're full-fledged human beings, we instead settled for an argument that, in their minds male, doctors should have some say in what we do with our bodies, and that legislators with no medical expertise can also meddle in the way that we access our health care. That fundamentally puts us on shaky ground, both legally and as a society. The fact is, since Roe
3: passed, the anti choice, anti abortion movement has been chipping away at our rights, which is made all the scarier by the current makeup of our Supreme Court. Documentary filmmaker Don Porter has been chronicling the advances of the anti abortion movement for years. Her doc, Trapped, discusses the types of laws and regulations that have stripped the protections of Roe.
4: You don't start with overturning Roe, you start with the chipping away. And you start with doing it in so many parts of the country that then you have in in lawyer terms, what that means is you have different states start to have different decisions. And that is how you get a case of the Supreme Court. You have to have a conflict in the circuit courts um, that the Supreme Court feels it needs to weigh in on. So if you have Georgia and Alabama and Louisiana all saying that these restrictions are legitimate and then you have California and New York and other places saying they're not, that's when a case is right to go to the Supreme Court. These, This particular strategy had failed. But now we find ourselves in a very different position with a different court. Cases are marching through the circuits again. So here we are again with a very different court. So... Um, You know, I I think the word for anybody who cares about reproductive rights is vigilance and understanding how your vote matters. Once upon a time, we could count on the Supreme Court to uphold its precedent, and that is no longer a certainty. So this next phase of the battle is going to be intense.
0: One of the points Sarah Weddington made in her original argument was that the state of Texas didn't have a compelling interest in fetal life because it was prosecuting doctors not the people terminating their own pregnancies. Targeting pregnant people themselves has largely been a losing strategy for folks in the anti-abortion front. It unsurprisingly isn't a popular position. Sarah used that to her advantage in arguing Roe, but it left the door open to extremists.
1: Sarah Weddington is saying that, you know, there's not as much of an interest in fetal life as Texas is saying that they have. And the one way you can tell that that is the case is that they're only prosecuting doctors. They're not prosecuting pregnant women. And if Texas was really so concerned about fetal life, the potential of fetal life, then they would be prosecuting everybody, right? You know, there's a lot of sort of hindsight is 2020 criticism that can be lodged at Sarah Weddington for making this argument because that argument led directly to what Texas and other states are doing now, which is proving that they have a real, super, hella hard interest in potential fetal life, so much so that they are willing to throw pregnant women in jail. They are willing to throw pregnant people in jail and doctors too. We're going to throw everybody in jail. If you talk to a person about abortion, if you drive someone to get an abortion, everybody's going to jail because that's how much we love fetal life. And so Roe versus Wade basically set the stage For states to demonstrate that they have such an interest in in potential fetal life that they are willing to do anything and everything to show that, meaning they're willing to force women to bury their fetuses. They're willing to force women to wait 48 hours to do all of these things that that they are now forced to do in order to to sort of say, look, we have this huge interest. We have this huge, compelling interest. It's so compelling that strict scrutiny should be applicable, not rational basis. So that's sort of how Roe set up sort of abortion to fail in in a certain respect. The
3: anti-abortion front is on the move. It's not hyperbole to say that Roe has never been in a more fragile place. Here's Gloria Allred again.
2: Even now, while we still have Roe v. Wade, the anti-choice crowd has been working ever since 1973 to chip away at Roe v. Wade, to undercut it, to erode it, and their goal, of course, is to have it reversed. Now, there is a, an anti-choice majority on the United States Supreme Court right now since former President Trump after he was elected or selected, depending on your point of view, did have an opportunity to nominate. And then they were confirmed three nominees to the United States Supreme Court, all of whom are anti-choice. So it hangs, Roe v. Wade, by a very slim thread.
0: Next week on Ordinary Equality, we're talking about how the anti-abortion movement ramped up organization in the wake of Roe. It's time to address the Long
3: Southern strategy, y'all.
0: Ordinary Equality is a Wonder Media Network production produced by Edie Allard, Grace Lynch, and Liz Smith. Our executive producer is Jenny Kaplan. Our original theme music is by Rachel Wardell. Special thanks to Janice Formichella and Taylor Williamson. We are living in a political moment in the United States that demands we make our voices heard. And the most effective way to campaign is by talking to the people you know. From Wonder Media Network, Majority 54 equips you with the tools to talk to your conservative friends and acquaintances, counter misinformation that's gone rampant online, and still maintain relationships with those whose opinions differ from your own. Each week, co-hosts Jason Cantor and Ravi Gupta are helping Americans who voted for progress to convince those who didn't to join our majority. Now more than ever, we must stand up, reach out, and work to make lasting change in our government and beyond. Listen to Majority 54 wherever you get your podcasts.